You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. I realize I have skipped the Apostles' Creed, but we can uh, come back to that uh, before the Lord's Supper uh, as a reminder of the common faith that we share as we look to the Lord's Supper of the common, uh, of our common faith. And so we come now to uh, chapter 6 as we've been continue, continuing our way through Luke's Gospel. Uh, we come now to this text, uh, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus gives an extended section of teaching. Um, my original plan was to do all of this in one sermon, and the more I looked over it, the more foolish that seemed, at least to me, Uh, So over the next three Sundays, uh, we'll be looking at uh, this wonderful text as Jesus Jesus speaks, but not just speaking, gives this extended discourse of teaching and really what it means uh, for us as believers. So uh, as we come to this text this morning, uh, starting in verse 17 of chapter 6 and going uh, to verse 26, uh, hear these words from Holy Scripture. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, as we come to this and the next uh, two sermons after, uh, as you hear this section being read, it probably draws to mind uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is given in Matthew over chapters 5 through 7. What's interesting to note is uh, certainly the differences between those. There's an extended uh, preamble that Jesus gives about the law uh, and, the, and, and simply seems to be highlighting the ethics now for the people of God, whereas Luke just jumps straight into the text of this sermon. They jump straight into, blessed are you, blessed are you, but he also includes which we don't find in Matthew, we have a counterpoint to these blessings with these words of woe, uh, which again is, is interesting. And so the question usually that comes up is how does this relate? Is this speaking of the exact same episode uh, as the Sermon on the Mount, or are these two uh, separate instances that just sound uh, very similar? And actually, I I come before you to say I don't really know the answer to that because either of these options, 
uh, is simply uh, completely fine for us to be looking at this morning. Because if you think about it, Jesus gave oral sermons. He did it without notes. And because of that, he would likely be reusing material uh, as he traveled around and, and preached to different groups. Because what he was saying was important. And so to repeat that to different groups of people, he didn't have the, the value, uh, if we call it a value of live streaming everything and having it all recorded down for him. The other thing we have to remember, though, if this is the same uh, sermon as the Sermon on the Mount, why does it sound different in places? Uh, and that comes back to uh, the other side of the argument is that Matthew uh, didn't have a notebook. Matthew didn't have any way to take notes. He would have had to work completely from memory. He would have heard everything that Jesus has said. And, and coming from a culture that had trained him to listen orally and to record things and to memorize them, he would have then written down what he had heard. And certainly the things that stood out to him would be things that he recorded. And Luke would have been dealing with eyewitnesses who had done the same. And having this material then, that could easily explain why there are differences. There are things that Matthew either just didn't want to record in the way he was framing his, and Luke decides to record, record uh, and include different things. And that could explain the differences in these. So either option, whether this is just a, another sermon that Jesus preached, uh, or it's the same, if you will, from a different angle, um, either of those to me seems to be perfectly uh, fine as we look at this. But as we, we come to this, clearly what Jesus is driving at is the ethics for the people of God, kingdom ethics. Because look at the way it's framed for us, the, the context in verses 17 through 19. Jesus has come down from a mountain, right? It looks as if this is a, a new Sinai. This is after he's actually reconstituted Israel with calling of the 12 disciples. And then in verse 17, he begins by uh, delivering a new law. What I do find fascinating is just the little details that Luke here includes is that those great multitude, you've got a multitude of disciples and a multitude of other people uh, who are present, and they're not just from Judea. No, he says Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So now we actually have this moment where Jesus is, is delivering his message, and it's got Jews and Gentiles there present. And Jesus is ultimately speaking to all of them, but he's also healing all of them. So his power is going forth to Jew and likely to Gentile. But in this passage, again, Luke highlights for us in verse 20 that he's specifically uh, tailoring this message primarily to his disciples. Uh, you'll notice this in verse 20. He lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, so his, his primary target for what he's saying are his disciples, that there are people who are listening on. And so really what we have here is that this is not just meant to be kind of general ethics for people to live by. I mean, though it would be good if they did. But really he's telling how the people of God uh, should behave and should act. Really, it's much like the, the Ten Commandments, that they were given by God to God's people and they were expected to be held to those standards. And so as we look at this over the next three sermons, uh, we, we have what we start with is kingdom blessings. Uh, and then after this, kingdom love and kingdom obedience. Uh, but this morning, right, we, we had this clearly divided text between blessings on the one hand and woes on the other. And so Jesus begins 
Jesus begins his sermon where the Psalms begin. He begins with blessings. The, the very first word of this is blessed uh, or happy are those. Jesus' first words in this extended form of teaching is speaking about happiness. How do we find happiness in relation to God? How do we find happiness ultimately in holiness? I mean, this is exactly, again, where the Psalms start. They speak of the blessed life that comes from uh, a right relationship with God and obedience coming from that. One commentator said here of the word blessing that it, it speaks of the state of being which is untroubled and free of care. Uh, really speaks almost uh, akin to the word peace, that there's great peace to be had. And so Jesus begins to speak of this blessing on those who are poor uh, in the second half of verse 20. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor. And again, the question then becomes, what, what is he speaking of here? Because I, th I think we can all agree that it's not necessarily the material poor that Jesus is after, as if he's saying that if you are materially poor, you are automatically included in the kingdom of God. Right? That would go contrary to everything that has come before it and everything that is going to come after it in Luke's gospel. So really what Jesus has to have in mind, and indeed throughout the entirety of this uh, small section, everything has a really a, a spiritual aspect to it that the material component helps us to just understand what he's speaking of. So Jesus certainly has in mind those who are spiritually poor, but thinking of, of poverty in an earthly sense helps us, I think, to navigate and move towards what Jesus means in a spiritual way. Because you can just think of what it would be like to be that completely destitute, to have nothing that could help you out, to have no funds at your disposal. You would be completely dependent upon everything outside of yourself. You, you would have nothing at your disposal to help yourself out. You can think of many, uh, when we see these miracles that happen of those who are poor and who are suffering and who have been carried by others, unable to walk and to work, they were completely dependent upon things outside of their control. They had no, no resources inside of themselves. And Jesus here is speaking of those who are spiritually poor, those who have no resources at their disposal. There's nothing that, that the person can do in order to save themselves. They must look outside themselves and see something as a gracious gift. And remember how Jesus speak, first speaks in chapter 4, verse 18, that he has come to fulfill what Isaiah long said, that he is coming to preach the good news to the poor. And really, we can see this fleshed out later in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Here we do have a materially poor person, but also someone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens is this poor man becomes infinitely wealthy. And so Jesus does have in his mind those who are poor in standing in the eyes of society, poor in resources, poor in wealth, poor in power, marginalized people, but ultimately focused on the spiritual aspect of it. And you can see the way in which these two passages, the, the blessings and the woes, are, are there to overturn the worldly thinking that dominates. Right? From, from a worldly standard, what you should be seeking after is money and wealth for those things will help save you, where Jesus is saying, no, actually the opposite of this is true. Those who are completely destitute are those who will seek after something outside of themselves. Jesus says, after all, seek first the kingdom of God. 
Seek after me and all things will be added to you. Jesus really is beginning this by saying invest, invest wisely. Invest in kingdom goals. Seek after a kingdom much like Abraham did. Abraham trusted in the Lord but didn't ultimately gain what he was seeking on an earthly perspective. And Jesus is really trying to drive home throughout these is that be, be those who seek after happiness, but seek after ultimate and true happiness, that which can actually fulfill you. And so he says, those who are, are spiritually poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And for those who may be poor by worldly standards, those who have Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying, actually, you're more wealthy than the world's billionaires put together. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And we think about this. What is the, the kingdom of God? It's this wonderful good news that Jesus has come to preach. He speaks of it in terms of liberation, of freedom, of experiencing God's special favor, of his delight in his people. It's a restoration. It's a wholeness. It's forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God and being brought into his family. It's the joy at the coming bridegroom. And Paul speaks of this in Philippians 3.8. He, he says, knowing Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Just interesting choice of words there. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That, that knowing the Lord Jesus Christ has this infinite value to it. Right, and as we, we come to this first one, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Really just asking, is, is this characteristic of us? Is this true of us? Right? Are we those who are, are spiritually poor, who look out to find ultimate satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we those who, who once finding salvation, continue to then work it out on our own, apart from Jesus? I mean, just think of the words Jesus speaks of. He speaks of, come to me and I will give you rest the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? We, we are those who trust in Christ alone. And from that, we then get all of these kingdom blessings. The, the poor become infinitely and eternally wealthy. Paul speaks of these great blessings that flow forth from knowing Jesus Christ uh, in the letter to the Ephesians. So then Jesus continues on by saying, blessed are those who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And obviously poverty and hungry, being hungry, go uh, together. And again, Jesus has in mind here not those who are hungry for physical food, though it's again, it's a good reminder of this desire and this yearning. For if you were starving, you would desire any food, anything. You'd be seeking out with this great desire and this great need to find something that would satisfy you. And Jesus here is speaking, though, of a, of a spiritual Hunger, looking for spiritual food. Isaiah 55.1 and Amos 8.11 speak about this spiritual food. And again, we, we think of the ways in which we see the disciples being called, that they leave behind everything because of their, their desire to be with Jesus. I think what it must be is that their lives must have had this kind of holy discontentment. They were just discontented with their life, and Jesus comes along and, and shows them and promises them, and they, they leave all and follow 
because they must have just seen how the, the world was unable to truly satisfy. I think if you, if you read about sort of the, the place in which we are uh, today, we have so much material blessings. You, know, you just think of, of all of the technology that we had, all of the wealth that we have, all the leisure time that we have, and, and yet what seems to be the case is that seems that people are actually more discontent and more unhappy than other times in the world. It's fascinating. They, we're given all of these things, and yet finding out more and more that these things cannot ultimately give us purpose and give us meaning. Right? And we come back again to the, the words of the gospel. It's Jesus who has this power to ultimately to satisfy. Again, Paul says, God the Father has blessed us, his people, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. There's all these spiritual blessings. And you can think again, Jesus speaking to his disciples, asking them, really, the, the question behind this, are you hungry? Are you hungry for more spiritual blessings? Are you hungry and thirsting after the things of the kingdom? For Jesus has come for this purpose. I mean, you think of already the feasting that has happened in Luke, really wanting to move us forward to this great messianic banquet that will come at the end of time. There's this hunger and the way in which God is using food here for us to look past it. Even the Lord's Supper seems to speak about this, a hunger and a thirsting. Then again, the, the parable of Lazarus. It speaks of him as, as, as hungry on earth and in a very physical sense. But then this wonderful spiritual picture of him feasting in heaven, satisfied with God's table, sitting beside Abraham. Right? And in, in this life, right, it speaks of the Christian faith as Jesus being with us, the Holy Spirit being in us, Christ interceding for us, the Father speaking to us through his word, and Christ feeding us in the supper, the Spirit washing us in baptism. There's this great joy that comes from being a Christian, for hungering and thirsting. Jesus says, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. And then he moves on to, uh, blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. And again, asking now, why is this person weeping? What are they weeping about? Are they just someone who is, is habitually sad? And again, that's not likely the case that what Jesus is getting at here. What, what he's speaking about here is someone who is concerned and someone who's mourning over their sins and over the, the sins of the world, over the state of God's people and the state of God's world, that this person looks out and looks in and finds much to be uh, sad about, much to weep over. You can think of, uh, of a, a Jewish believer during this time of seeing the state that Israel's in and seeing the state in which they're currently rejecting the Messiah whom God has sent to them after many years of promises. Or for us today, just to look out into this world and to see the, the darkness, see the sin, see the suffering, see the fact that there are many people still walking in darkness. That should give us plenty to, to weep about. Right? The state of the kingdom. It has not fully come yet. And the state of ourselves. Right? We are those, if you trust in Christ, we are those who have been forgiven and made righteous, yet we are simultaneously those who still consider to still uh, sin day in and day out. 
And do we weep? Are we those who are sad at the state of the world? Sad at the state of Gloucester? Sad at the state of our souls? But Jesus says here to his disciples, those who are sad, those who mourn over those sins, are those who shall laugh in joy. They shall rejoice in what Jesus is doing in their life. And then finally, Jesus ends this section of blessing with persecution in verses 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And again, look at the way in which he's turning around the world's view and replacing it with his. Setting uh, what the world views as as a happy life, he's completely turning it on its head. And again, I don't think any of us would view a happy life as one in which we are persecuted. For people to hate us, revile us, exclude us. That seems a tall order to think of that as a happy life. But Jesus goes so far in verse 23 to then say, not only are you blessed, but also the response of that should be rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice. But think about what we see in the life of Jesus. Why did Jesus continue to the cross? Hebrews says it was for the joy that was set before him. The joy. The one person who sovereignly knew what was going to happen every step of the way is the one person, it says, went forward in joy. Or think of the apostles. In Acts chapter 5, they are, are beaten. They are told to stop preaching the gospel. They are taken before the court. Their very lives could be in danger. They are actually let go. And what is their response? Their response is rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is this blessing the blessing that comes from this, the rejoicing that comes from this, is that there's an identification going on. That as they did to Jesus, if they're doing to us, then it's a a realization that we look and act and are a part of Jesus. He says, as they do to me, they will do to you. Well, the reason they would be doing that is because we would be acting like him, wouldn't it? The reason you're going to get persecuted for being a Christian is if you act like a Christian. But also, it shows forth that your faith is true. Because what person is willingly going to go in to persecution when it would be so much easier to not? And so I think there's a great blessing Jesus speaks of, this, this great rejoicing that happens because it's a, it's a showing forth of your internal faith. And it's showing forth, almost like the sacraments do, that you belong to Jesus. And he says, rejoice, your reward will be great. I think it's interesting the way he frames this. All of these things he's saying, none of it is, do this, you won't be happy. But it will be great in the end. Rather, he is saying there's actual joy, there's actual blessing to be found now and a hundredfold later. I mean, really, this, this section could be titled the, the easy life or the, the Jesus life. 
Well, then Luke includes for us the, the counterpoint to all of this. He speaks of the, the same blessings, but now he reverses them and speaks of woe. And here the, the word woe really has with it pain or displeasure. Uh, this is not the opposite. Usually in the Old Testament, when you have blessing, you have the opposite of cursing. Uh, but here it's not quite the, carrying that connotation. It's, it's more of speaking about how to have an unhappy life. If the first section is how to have a blessed life, a happy life, here these woes speak to, and again, speaking to disciples about how to have an unhappy life. And so he he begins with those who are rich now, for you have received your consolation. I mean, this theme that Luke has been drawing out of being rich towards God, about the, the, the rich man who ends in poverty in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Or the the rich man who comes to Jesus, refuses to give up all, and walks away sad in chapter 18. Jesus is is not speaking here necessarily of earthly wealth, but of self-sufficiency. And often wealth does bring that. Those who are rich often find that they have what they need. Or rather, they just start increasing their standards and find that they need more. But Jesus, again, is is reminding us of this is the way to pursue an unhappy life, is by being self-sufficient, right? Because money can leave. A war can happen, (laughs) right? Health can go. Relatives can leave or die. And one day, you'll die, and all of your wealth, all of your accumulation, and all of your stuff that you have is totally worthless to you. You know, the the joke always goes, whenever you see a hearse coming, there's not a a trailer behind it carrying all of your stuff. It'd be pointless for that. And again, he's addressing this to the disciples. And actually, if you were to get to the uh, very end, which Lord willing we do, uh, in verses 46 through 49, there's this spiritual danger that is absolutely present for all of us. And the question becomes, again, are we self-sufficient or are we dependent you can think of the way that Jesus speaks of disciples. They should be like children because children know they're needy. Children know they need somebody else, right? It's only adults who we start to think we have it all figured out, and the horrible, horrible truth is we don't. Are we self-sufficient or are we dependent, right? This is a danger that disciples can fall into, right? They can, they can move from grace to works. Well, I'm saved, so now I need to earn that salvation. And so Jesus continues. He says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And again, he's speaking of those who are satisfied now, who have no thirst for righteousness. They have no spiritual hunger. And remember earlier, Jesus has said, I have come to heal the sick, not the well. And it's this perceived righteousness, this perceived wellness that the Pharisees had. They thought that they had everything that they needed. And Jesus illustrates this really vividly with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in chapter 18. One leaves justified or right with God. And it was the one who was humble and destitute. He went away justified. But the one who had exalted himself will one day find himself humbled 
right? And are you a self-righteous disciple? Am I a self-righteous disciple? Right, you can think of the way in which these would, would, would come up before us, right? I go to church, I pray, I read my Bible, therefore, God loves me, or God will do these things for me, or God owes me, right? A self-righteous disciple is just simply a contradiction in terms. Paul has to deal with this when he's uh, chastising the Galatians, that they, what they started in faith, they're trying to finish in works, and clearly then, if Paul's having to speak about this to another group of believers, it's just a very real danger for you and I. That we need the gospel once more. We need Jesus once more. We need to fix our eyes upon him once more. And then Jesus brings out those who laugh, for they shall mourn and weep. Obviously, Jesus has no problem with joy. Joy is the proper response to salvation. That's what he, he, he seems to be almost annoyed at the Pharisees who are grumbling and complaining when the right response is to rejoice. But really what it seems to be here is that these, these people are rejoicing in the state of the world, in the state of their souls. They, they must really be ultimately rejoicing in sin in one form of another, even though they're, they're deluded in their joy. And they will be those who rejoice now, will one day weep later. And think about the ways in which all of these are moving, this self-satisfaction, this, this joy now over sin, this, this not needing of external righteousness, that all of it comes crashing down in the end. And then finally, he has speaking well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. I mean, ultimately, Jesus is just saying being loved by the world has a price, right? The false prophets of the Old Testament often told people exactly what they wanted to hear, not what God was saying. And then think how easy it is with friends or with family uh, to just sidestep the gospel issues, right? Obviously, that doesn't mean you go around being a jerk to other people. We look and act as Jesus. He was never spiteful, mean, or vindictive. Peter speaks of having a tender heart and a humble mind when we give a defense in all gentleness and respect. And Jesus ultimately, uh, working out this in chapter 12, speaks of if you deny the Son of Man, the Son of Man denies you. And I mean, that's just simply woe indeed. And so as we, we, start, we come to the conclusion here of this first section of blessings, right? Jesus ultimately wants us to see the world as it really is. Because the world speaks of a way to find happiness that ultimately won't fulfill what it promises. It's often like thinking of the, the rainbow and the, the, the myth of the pot of gold at the end of it. You can search and search and search, but there is nothing at the end. And the, the blessings that the world promises leads ultimately to nothing. But actually, it's worse than that, isn't it? To follow the world will actually lead to alienation and separation from love itself. Whereas the kingdom calls us to be like our Savior in his life, to imitate him and all these blessings that then flow to us in this life and ultimately in the world to come. So Jesus simply says, I mean, if you summed up all of this section here, 
simply says, Jesus just says, open your eyes. Open your eyes and then choose wisely the path of true happiness or the path of false happiness. What will you choose? What will we choose? Amen. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. For more, thank you.